listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti, and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded at the ABA's National Summit on Innovation and Legal Services at Stanford Law School in Stanford, California. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have three guests. First up, I have Mr. Jordan Furlong. Welcome. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And Great I pronounced your last name correct? Yes, you did. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> and I have uh, Professor David Wilkins. Nice to be here, Lawrence. Thank well, you. Welcome. And last but certainly not least, I have uh, Professor Deborah Rohde. Yes, thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Now, um, you uh, were all part of a panel discussion called Reporting Out with Reaction. And so before we get into the content of that, I'd just like to have you introduce yourselves from the point of where you work uh, and what do you do for the benefit of our listeners. And so I started with Jordan, so I'll come back to Jordan. Uh, Where do you work and what do you do? Thanks, Lawrence. I'm a uh, legal market analyst, uh, writer, speaker, and consultant for the uh, legal profession. Uh, I work with uh, Edge International, and uh, I just uh, go and speak wherever... uh, uh, there are opportunities to discuss the changes in the legal market and opportunities to uh, to improve and enhance those services. Great. And uh, Professor Wilkins? So I'm a professor at Harvard Law School. I'm the director of the Center on the Legal Profession, and I've been studying the legal profession now for almost 30 years. Now, as a Harvard professor, are you allowed to talk to people at Stanford? Uh, I follow people at Stanford okay. since Deborah okay. has been one of my heroes since I came in the profession, which is a sly way of saying she's older than I am. <laughs> oh. And uh, Professor Rohde. Yes, I'm a professor and direct the Center on the Legal Profession at Stanford. Okay, fantastic. So reporting out with reaction. Now, Jordan, you were uh, moderating the event, so I'm going to turn to you. If you could give us a general explanation, what was the tenor of all of the contributions during that presentation? It was a really interesting presentation, Lawrence. It started off with uh, Professor Renee Kanaki of Michigan State College of Law, uh, who is the uh, reporter for the ABA's uh, Commission on the Future of Legal Services. And what she started us off with was a a summary and uh, and description of all of the contributions made uh, yesterday by a host, by scores of uh, delegates to this event in terms of identifying the challenges that, of course, we all know very well in the delivery of legal services, but then also really focusing in and zooming in on uh, solutions, practical ways forward, things we can actually do and things we should be talking about very seriously. And then we uh, segued into a, a panel of which uh, Deborah and David were both uh, key members. And we discussed those uh, those findings. We talked about, again, very practical ways. What are the impediments? What are the opportunities? And, and I think one of the things that was most encouraging about the, the panel discussion especially was that we had an opportunity to really identify some of those elephants that have been hanging out in the room for a long time talking about subjects that have been considered a little bit taboo traditionally, especially with uh, within the organized bar and with the ABA. And uh, and I think being able to talk about those uh, issues openly and to get a sense that there is widespread agreement in the room that these are important issues was really encouraging uh, for, the, for the entire event. Great. Hey, you know, I want to turn a little bit when we're talking about impediments. Uh, um, Professor Rohde, you, you said something in there. I was uh, taking some notes uh, in the back, and uh, you said that uh, legal rules that are unduly restrictive need to go. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite get the exact quote there. But uh, what kind of rules were you talking about when you mentioned that? Well, I was talking specifically about uh, restrictions on the practice of law by those who don't have legal degrees. And I think we radically need to rethink how we license professionals. The medical profession does it much more sensibly. They have a range of 
service providers. Um, doctors don't do um, all of this uh, routine um, uh, services, and we need the um, equivalent of that in law. In other countries, people can give legal advice, trained um, uh, experts uh, can give legal advice without being practicing members of the legal profession. And we need to rethink the structure of legal education. So we have one-year degree, two-year degree, three-year degrees with different levels of practice certification so that we open up um, the market for the delivery of legal services to a wide range of service providers. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, we've been doing uh, quite a few of these panel interviews and uh, some of the messaging that's been coming out of those is that there is a very serious access to justice problem. And so people aren't getting enough representation. So, you know, opening the floor up a little bit, maybe for some more limited aspects of representation gives people the option to have legal representation where they earlier did not. So it's um, like uh, programs like the Triple LT um, coming out of Washington, and I think that was uh, Stephen Crossland that was part of that presentation was talking about that. I have to admit, at first when I heard that, he came on a show of ours, uh, Paralegal Voice with Vicki Voison, and I heard that, and, you know, I'm an attorney, and I recoil just a little bit. Not, not, in, not in a mean way. I just like, wow, you know, we take our, our craft very seriously. We want to make sure people have the best type of representation, but a paralegal doing something that used to be the work of an attorney, you know, made me, made me have a step back. But then I thought about it. If they don't do it, these people don't have any type of representation. So it's, those are the kind of things that you're talking about, yeah, Professor Rudy? We, we have the world's highest concentration of lawyers, the most expensive system of legal education in the world, and yet well over four-fifths of the legal needs of low-income um, individuals aren't being met. About a third of the needs of middle-income uh, consumers remain unmet. So we really need a better way of delivering services um, uh, to people who don't have deep pockets. Professor Wilkins, what were some of the other impediments to, uh, I guess, uh, to access of justice, but uh, other impediments to the delivery of law? It's a log list. Uh, and I think, uh, look, Professor Rohde has been one of the leading people. I shouldn't say that. She's the leading mm. person in the world who's really been thinking about these issues, about uh, uh, having opening up the regulatory structure to other kinds of people practicing or delivering legal services, I should say. Um, uh, let me identify a couple of other things. Uh, one is that uh, we need different organizational structures through which law can be practiced, or I want to say legal services delivered, because I think once we say the practice of law, then all, automatically we're thinking only what lawyers do, and right. then we start thinking about all the traditional models within which it is uh, practiced. But what we're really talking about is delivering a whole set of services around access to law, legal information, uh, legal processes. And once we think about it that way, then it makes absolutely no sense that there's only one organizational structure uh, within which one can deliver those services. So right now in the UK, there has been a whole liberalization around different modes of delivering legal services. So I think that's one thing that's very important. Uh, another thing that's very important is to think differently about how the uh, 
how even people who are lawyers deliver the services that they deliver. That is one thing, actually, I don't think we talked quite as much about as we probably should have, which is not just changing who's going to do it, but changing what the it is that's mm -hmm. being delivered. What is it that lawyers are doing? And that will actually have implications for the people who should be delivering it. And then the last piece, uh, and the one that I'm particularly interested in, is how are we going to measure the quality and the value of, of the it that is being delivered. And that's the place where I'd say we've made the least amount of progress in the legal profession in thinking about what is it, what are, how are we gonna measure the results that we're producing? And that's a complicated question, but it's one I think we really need to start on. I'd like to build on that a little bit. Uh, one of your fellow panelists, uh, Lisa Foster, was talking about letting the market sector uh, develop some of these new services and then uh, as part of our series of interviews, we've also been uh, hearing about some alternative, when you're talking about alternative organizations or entities. And one of the ideas, because uh, finances have become part of the gap in providing justice, um, was allowing third-party ownerships of, of different, uh, uh, I guess it would be companies or entities that provide legal services. And so obviously there's a lot of concern with that because of the practice of law and having a third-party ownership non-lawyer own an entity that provides legal services. So Jordan, I want to turn to you on that. Uh, Lisa Foster called out for letting the marketplace develop some of these uh, some of these ideas. And I guess as we march forward, is the private sector capable of self-policing enough so that you can trust an organization owned by non-lawyers to provide the proper legal services to clients? Uh, broadly speaking, my answer is yes. Uh, and I think there's two different elements uh, that, that are brought into that. Uh, the first is, is this whole question, I think you identified it very well, there, there is often a visceral reaction by lawyers against the idea that there would be any kind of investment or equity ownership by quote-unquote non-lawyers in the running of a law firm. And when you drill down on that with lawyers, it's interesting the responses you'll often get. You'll say, well, what's your objection fundamentally? And they'll say, well, uh, these, these shareholders, will they, they will simply uh, strip mine the firm for short-term profit. Uh, they will uh, they, they will focus entirely on uh, on the present. They won't make any kind of long-term investments. Yet they won't uh, offer services uh, beyond the most, uh, I guess, highest-paying clients. And then say to them, and how is that different from what we're doing right now? <laughs> Fundamentally, law firms have uh, shareholders right now. They're called equity partners. And, and we've already got a very clear uh, example of what that particular uh, model offers. And, and I think the, the other element of that really raises uh, a key point about the psychology of lawyers and the psychology of this idea of non-lawyers, because really, drill down deep enough, and the fundamental objection lawyers have to, again, quote-unquote, non-lawyer involvement, is that non-lawyers are in some way inferior to lawyers, that they don't have the ethical commitment, they don't have the professionalism, they don't have all kinds of things which they love to talk about, but going right back to, David, your point about metrics, that, uh, th that we can actually quantify in a meaningful way. The last point on that is uh, the whole question of letting the market operate. 
and the, the the nature of the legal profession, as we all know, tends to be fairly risk averse. That's that's so well now known to be, uh, I think, not just bordering on a cliche, but having actually cleared uh, into the new territory, and and that's fine. It's fine for lawyers to be risk averse, to be in the business of identifying risks and minimizing them, and so forth. And it's also fine for lawyers to say, I'm not comfortable with certain kinds of uh, offerings being made and certain certain kind of business structures. That's great. That's that's your business. That's fine. But the difficulty is we as the legal profession have then extended our risk assessment to everyone else and said, your risk profile is now going to be ours. We're not going to let a thousand flowers bloom because we have decided that we have decided for you that the risks are too great. That's the fundamental issue I think that we need to confront, talking about elephants in the room uh, in, in the legal profession right now. I want to give um, uh, Professor Wilkins and Professor Rohde a chance to react to that. And how do you feel about, in general, that third-party oversight? Can a third-party entity self-police enough to make sure that the the rules that we've come to cherish as lawyers are ethical standards, which we hold very high? I mean, most of us do. I know lawyers sometimes get a bad name, but, you know, my friends, most of them I know are very ethical, and so we want to maintain those high standards. Can a a third-party-owned entity do that? Yeah. Well, we have some experience with um, firms in Australia and in the UK where third-party ownership is permitted and the sky hasn't fallen. Um, The kinds of ethical problems that are predicted haven't materialized, and those firms are in in many ways eating the lunch of firms with the traditional uh, financial structure, which restricts equity partnerships um, to, to lawyers. And Quite frankly, as um, one expert put it, just as uh, librarians didn't invent Google, some of the best ideas and capital for reforms in the legal process are going to come from outside the profession, and we have to let them in. And we really need the kind of investment in resources and ideas that will fuel innovation. So, Lawrence, just a couple of things. One is... You conflate think two things which are often conflated in your question, which aren't necessarily have to be the same. One is, do we allow outside investment into law firms or other legal service providers? And the second is whether it's self-regulation by the market. Who, you know, companies are not self-regulated by the market. We have the 33 Act, the 34 Act. There's all kinds of regulation That's true. that you can put on uh, things that are corporate entities. That's the first point. The second point is we already have outside investment in law firm. It's called bank debt. And uh, every law firm has a line of credit, many, oh, many, many, many millions of dollars. Law firms often fail because the bank calls the line of credit. This is maybe the, it wasn't what caused Dewey to fail, but it was the single precipitating thing. Uh, you know, they went out and got the $5 million debenture. Maybe that's why the managing partner is going to go to jail. Uh, so there is already outside investment into law firms. And we also already have... Uh, we have companies owning uh, uh, legal service providers. They're called in-house counsels. So, you know, the Very in-house counsel department is a, is a legal service provider that sits inside of a corporate entity. So, you know, part of, and this goes back to what Jordan said, if we, if we set up a kind of straw person of saying – oh, my God, we can't change this because it, it'll it be so different. Well, we have to understand what the realities of the current structure are. Uh, the last thing, and this really builds on what Deborah said, is that 
the problems that we need to tackle are clearly multidisciplinary problems. And that's true whether we're talking at the individual level of you know, somebody who has a, yes, they have a landlord-tenant problem, but why do they have that? Maybe because somebody got sick, and maybe it's because the building uh, uh, has uh, is in a neighborhood in which there aren't educational opportunities or it doesn't have pu public transportation or whatever, all the way to the highest corporate level in which if you ask most general counsels actually what they do, they don't practice law. What they do is they try to put together law, strategy, finance, economics, uh, politics to try to understand how to do business in a global environment. If the problems are multidisciplinary, then we need multidisciplinary solutions. And the only way we're going to get multidisciplinary solutions is if people, if the people who have the expertise feel that they are valued and can work collaboratively together. And if we insist on calling those people non-lawyers, like non-humans, or <laughs> they're not going to want to collaborate. And if they can't be full participants and owners in the business, they're not going to want to collaborate. So if the problems are multidisciplinary, that means the solutions have to be multidisciplinary, which means we have to have organizations that encourage that way of thinking and behaving. Great. I have one last question for, for all of you. I wanted to, uh, because this is one of the last interviews that we're doing uh, at this event, um, you know, I've learned a lot since I've been here. You know, we've got the series of interviews and watching some of the presentations. I've just, I've learned a lot. One of the things that I've learned, I think it was just a message being driven home, is the, the real life impact of lack of access to justice and, and uh, the, the impact it has in people's lives. And so I've mentioned this, uh, so this statistic a couple of times during these interviews. You know, in some jurisdictions, 80% of people do not have representation in a family law matter. And that's just staggering to me. Um, and you hear a lot of uh, solutions. Here's the other thing. Uh, and this was a point that was brought, uh, one of our interviews by Professor Goodenough. He said, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, Mark. <coughs> <coughs> Allergies. Sorry, you guys. Okay. And so one of the points uh, that was come up that came up in one of the uh, prior interviews that we did was brought by Professor Goodenough, and he said that uh, perfection becomes, and I'm paraphrasing, perfection becomes the enemy of good. And uh, and so what I mean, what he meant by that was that we're so focused on providing a perfect solution that we become paralyzed to provide, you know, the 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 good solutions that can begin to, you know. Um, Bait some of these problems that we're having in the justice field, and so I just wanted to I wanted to ask you guys, you know, what was the biggest lesson you learned? What is your single biggest takeaway from all of these presentations and the conversations you had, and some of the and I don't know if you participated in some of the breakaway sessions, but uh, some of the ideas that came out of there. So I'd like to turn the floor to Professor Rohde. Uh, what was the single biggest takeaway? I'm struck by the the very complicated politics of progress in this area. We generated a terrific agenda. And the people who came to this conference were um, came by invitation, so they were by definition people who were committed to um, care about access to justice and innovation. And not surprisingly, they had a lot of um, very insightful descriptions of the problem and very um, um, promising uh, solutions. It seems to me that the fundamental challenge going forward is to figure out a way to um, really make those possibilities 
possible in the real world. And for that, we need political solutions and political will of a lot of people who weren't in that room. And I think that really is the crux of, of the issue. Um, you know, self-interest is one of those elephants in the room that we didn't talk about. And the bar is really, uh, its rank and file members haven't been uh, drum majors for change in this area because they feel very threatened. Um, both by technology and by the prospect of, of competition from other service providers. And somehow we've got to re relax the regulatory stranglehold that gives lawyers too much control over regulation of their own profession and de the delivery of legal services and allows them too often to prefer their own self-interest to the interest of the public. How about you, Jordan? You know, uh, agreeing with everything that Deborah has said, uh, but you know, for me, the the the, the takeaway uh, was that I'm I'm oddly optimistic after after this event, um, because the, the the breadth and the depth of the expertise and the perspectives that were brought to bear uh, in this event, and and keeping in mind, yes, there's there's a scores of people here. But there's been other people who weren't uh, just just by just by design nature and design. You can only have so many uh, voices. But I was struck by the widespread acceptance that not only not only is change needed. I think we've we've known that for a while. That's that's not a new uh, new thing. But I, I, I sense a growing appreciation that change actually is going to happen. Right? That, that there's there's almost this growing sense of inevitability. And you're getting it from rank-and-file lawyers who were at this event, from people within the academy, with people within courts. It's, and it's funny. It's, it's almost it's, – it didn't happen – not one single person didn't stand up and say, you know, the, 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 the sun has changed and, 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 and it's, it's a different sky, it's a different world. But I just feel a real momentum shift. I've believed for a while that change is both inevitable and irrevocable. As I'm fond of saying, uh, there is going to be an American state with alternative business structures allowing uh, law firms to be owned by people who aren't lawyers. It is indisputable to me that that's going to happen. When it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, I don't know. Not going to bother making the prediction. But I just don't see any other way, any other destination that all the trend lines are leading us. Uh, and, and that's fine. It's one thing for me to say that. But I'm just getting a stronger sense that more and more people are recognizing that. And sometimes it's just that. It's that acceptance that tends to spread. And, and, and one day what, is, what, what used to be unthinkable or used to be uh, uh, unfathomable or unspeakable, and then suddenly one day it becomes, you know what, this is just the way things are. And I do think we're on our way there. Professor Wilkins. So I, I, not surprisingly, I agree uh, with both what Deborah and Jordan said. I suppose I'll, I'll put this cautionary note I was struck, uh, as I often am in these situations, by how little we know. Uh, and I'd say maybe three ways to think about that. How little we know about what's actually already going on. I bet you that many people were surprised by many things that people said were already happening and not just in faraway exotic places like London, but <laughs> actually right here in the United States. Uh, the second is, uh, how little we know about what our real priorities are. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a whole hodgepodge list of priorities. So I, one of the things I said at the closing panel, it was a very impressive array of solutions, but the problem is that many of them were solving 
very different problems, and several of them were mutually inconsistent. And not they shouldn't be necessarily all consistent, but that means that there has to be a set of priorities about what it is, what are the most important things that we're trying to do? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then the third thing is uh, that we know almost nothing about what the consequences are either of what we're already doing. So we assume a baseline that we actually have no reason to assume to be true about what the current system is doing, either positively or negatively. We've got lots of anecdotes. We have almost no systematic information at all. And then we have even less about what some of these alternatives might look like. And as Deborah said, there are places we could go look, some of which are in the other places around the world where laws about the legal profession or the practice of law or the delivery of legal services even more broadly have been changed. But also because there are lots of these changes are going on in other parts of the professional services world and the economy generally. And there is no connection between those things and what we're doing here. So I say I'm with Jordan in the sense that it's optimistic in the sense that people, I think, there is a recognition that change is, change is going to come, as we used to say in the old spiritual days. Uh, but Dr. King said, you know, time is neutral, actually. And what I worry about is that people think, well, the change is going to come, and there's a certain inevitability, but then they don't do the hard work of figuring out what is the change we want, and then what are the ways in which we can produce it. That's Deborah's point about political resistances. And how are we going to know whether we've gotten there and that it works? Yeah. And that's about developing sophisticated metrics of quality which incorporate all the complex things we want out of lawyers. We don't just want them to be cheaper and faster, actually. You know, we also want them to deliver something called justice. We want them to support human dignity. We want them to empower people to feel that they can be full participants in a democracy. These are not things that are easy to put bottom line metrics on, and yet the choices that we're going to make have varying implications for these varying goods that we want to get out of the legal, not just the legal profession, but the legal system and society as a whole. Well, we've reached the end of our time for this episode, but I want to thank my uh, my guests here, our guests, for uh, for making their contributions and giving us their uh, insights. And for your speaking event, I found it very enlightening. So uh, if, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, uh, engage you further in some of the conversations that you've had, how can they reach you? Uh, Rhodey, R-H-O-D-E, at stanford.edu. Uh, Law21, L-A-W-2-1.ca. Yes, that's a giveaway. I am Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my email is dwilkins, D-W-I-L-K-I-N-S, at law.harvard.edu. Excellent. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.